Hello and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast. I'm your host Adam Scully and I hope you all enjoy the following episode. The big game is now upon us, the UEFA Champions League final. The greatest spectacle in European club football. After 10 months of watching teams slogging back and forth, seeing the competition narrow down from the plethora of sides in the preliminary and playoff rounds, to the 32 in the group phase, to the final 16, the last eight, and the fatal four. Just two clubs remain. English 3P champions Manchester City and three-time winners of the contest Internazionale from Syria. It's Haaland versus Martinez, Ederson versus Onana, Guardiola versus Inzaghi, the Blues versus the Nerazzurri, the Treble Chasers versus Pep's Tormentors. This podcast will be a tactical preview of the final between two of the best sides in Europe right now, if not the best, and two of the best tacticians on the planet. To do so, I will be joined by three of the very finest that TFA and Ronnie Dog Media have to offer. Our head of betting and affiliates, Lucas Mondelo, TFA analyst David Astill, and TFA recruitment analyst and co-host of the TFA Scouted podcast alongside myself, Bryant Marquez. We'll be previewing the key tactical battles from the colossal clash in Istanbul, while our betting expert, Lucas, will be offering some insight on worthwhile bets ahead of the game if you're interested in trying to earn a little bit of money this weekend. But please please remember to gamble responsibly when taking this advice on board and also you must be over 18 to gamble please comply with the gambling regulations of your country also before we begin please make sure to rate the podcast five stars hopefully it's genuinely appreciated so so much if the podcast is to continuously grow and get better guests on we'll need your help so it really would mean a lot if you could give us a five star rating and we'll do our best to bring you the very best audio content that we can. So now, let's go speak to the gang to dissect the upcoming Clash of the Titans. David, Brian, Lucas, welcome back to the TFA podcast. Brian, you're obviously a, a, a regular on the, the podcast, being the, the co-host of the TFA Scouter podcast with myself, but David, it's been a while for you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks, Adam. Are you? I'm Doing very well. I'm very warm, as you as I've alluded to before the podcast started. Lucas, you haven't done a podcast in probably the same amount of time as David was at the World Cup final. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. Been a while. Wow, I can't believe that's. I, I actually spoke to you uh, recently, Lucas, about this that it was six months since the the World Cup podcast ended. Already, it's already half a year since we stopped doing that, which was a full month monthly marathon of of us recording every single day, reviewing and previewing games. And I can't believe it's already been six months. And here we are at the end of the season. Well, most of the, the end of most seasons, I suppose. I understand there are still summer leagues going on. But we have the Champions League final this weekend. Now, it's no, it's no, uh, I, I don't, I don't keep it a secret that I, I tend to support the, the other side of Manchester. That's my tendency. So, I'm battling through the pain right now of watching Manchester City potentially lift a treble. I was not born when Manchester United won the treble in 1999, but I get to see the blue side do it now, which is very fun. David, I'll throw to you first. Man City are obviously the heavy favourites going into this final. I don't think it's disrespectful to say that. But do Inter have... Any chances, really? I don't want to say they don't have any chance. Of course, they have any chance. You know, to, to be cliched, anything can happen in a in a in a football match. But like what happened on 
on Saturday in the Manchester Derby. I don't think Man United were that bad, but it comes a point when the team who are so, so good all play well. It's kind of only so much you can do. What are your thoughts on Inter's chances ahead of of this final? I, I, I think there's still a chance. I mean, it's going to be difficult for them. I think I think everyone can accept that. You know, Man City just seem fairly unrelentless uh, relentless at the minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, interplay an interesting style of play. They play with a back back five, so that gives them a chance because they can sort of mix things up and they can sit mm-hmm. back, they can push forward. So they've always got a chance. They can adapt it to how different uh, how Man City might play. Um, but I think you know, Man City have found a way to win this season, even those tough ones that they, they look like they're slightly struggling in. They're not struggling in because they just find a way. And I think the same thing will happen in this game is that Inter might might ask a few questions and Man City will just find a way. Pep just seems to have a system for every single eventuality. Mm-hmm. Um but but Inter have got a very good, they've got some good players and some players in form at the moment, as players are coming into form. Um and as I said they've got a style of play that means they can adapt. So there's there's no reason to say at the moment that they're completely out of this. I agree. But Lucas in our opinion, obviously we Man City are the favourites, and but Inter do have a chance. But what do the bookmakers say? Because they will, they're probably a lot more clued up in terms of the of of data than than we would be in this respect, and have a much kind of a better knowledge of who would be the favourite. So, in the eyes of the market, what's 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 the market telling us? We have a similar situation comparing with the final that we had some time ago between Man City and Chelsea. We have City with odds to win the game at one point forty four to one. And uh, odds to lift the trophy to of uh, 1.22 to 1. There are a bit different because they consider extra time and potential penalties. So the first market means that if they don't win in regular time, uh, the bet is a loss. So the situation here is, is kind of like very, very similar in the sense that they have the better team they have uh, this notion that the worst is over technically after real madrid but uh, i think that um, when you when you get into this land of firsts like the first treble the first uh, title of the champions league you have your mind potentially playing against you and that's where the gods of inter kind of lie in this sense hmm. So it's pretty much like what you guys said. I mean, they have the better team, they have the better chances, but uh, I guess that uh, it's all a matter of, you know, making this true at once, which uh, perhaps it's the time for Guardiola team, but uh, Inter is somehow like institutionally calmer in the sense that they have been there before, not just once. So it's not that much uh, of a pressure in a way. So did you say at the start that Inter's chances are similar to Chelsea's two years ago. Yeah, almost the same odds. I find that really interesting considering Chelsea beat City twice before that final. That's quite interesting. And obviously, I I don't believe Pep has faced Inter since that famous night in 2010 against Jose's Inter. I find that really interesting. Why is that, though? You know, betting markets can be very interesting. I mean, they combine... The impressions of the bookmakers to to kick off the markets, and then it's basically adjusted by how much money goes into each side, which is something people mm-hmm. sometimes don't get. I mean, if there are too many bets on one side, it is adjusted. So, if this final had happened before that time when uh, Chelsea won against City, perhaps it would have different odds right now. So, head to head history. 
in a in an indirect way we can say like you know city trying to win the trophy against an underdog and everyone knows what this could become because of recent past it affects the odds even though it's a different team and in a situation like that so i believe the memories a little bit fresh i mean in terms of seeing Man City in a final, but perhaps not going all the way through. So mm -hmm. I think that kind of explains this. I don't think the odds are necessarily overly, you know, not balanced. I think we have an almost, you know, correct situation because when you are a professional gambler, you, you kind of have to, you know, price things very carefully. And, uh, you know, you got to respect the other side too. I think uh, it's just one game. It's the game where attention levels will be very different. Some players will overperform and uh, some players may underperform under pressure at CD's side. So all these things need to be considered. I think that kind of explains. That's incredibly interesting. But getting more into the tactical side of the game now, Bryant, David made a really good point about Inter being quite flexible and adaptable. And I think in the fourth leg of the semi-final against AC Milan, we saw that because they were very, they were a very, very offensive minded in the first, I believe it was 10 minutes of that game. But as soon as they scored the second, it, they, they started to drop off more and more. And what happened was that they would sit the wingbacks back and just defend almost in a, in a, a five, three, two shape. And they were extremely difficult to break down. And there was, so I think AC Milan grew, or Milan, apologies, grew more and more into that game as it wore on, but they couldn't break down Inter. And I do find that interesting that Inter didn't really push for more after that. They had a, you know, they, they had a lot more chances, granted, but especially in the second half, I think they just kind of sat off Milan and let them have a bit more of the ball and, and, and let them create chances because they knew they couldn't break them down. I was really impressed by their defensive performance. Do you think it would be a wise strategy. Easier said than done, obviously. Do you think it'd be a wise strategy for Inter to try and go for the goal quite early, like they did against Milan, and then maybe drop off and see if they can, they can hold on to a goal lead for the rest of the game? Or do you think, again, it's just kind of... It, it, it's easier said than done, and City will probably tear them apart if they, if they, if they attack so freely in the first 10-15 minutes? You know, it, it's not crazy to think that because Inter obviously have a really good squad, have a really good, um, like an attacking outlet with Lukaku, mm -hmm. Lotaro, Di Marco and Dumfries going on the wings and then um, maybe Barella joining from behind. They're really good names. It's a really good squad. And what really stands out for me is the way, is a varied way they can defend and they can attack. You know, they can go into the counter-attack really quickly mm. with a long ball into Lukaku. He chests the ball and he looks for Lautaro and, and they score. Or they can do it in a very organized way, um, overloading certain zones and trying to soak up the pressure to then go long with Barella or something like that. Someone who can dynamize in that, in that sense. You know, Inter has demonstrated not only Inter, but Simone Inzaghi that they are a really good team in knockout stages. Mm -hmm. um, last season at Coppa Italia, this season at Coppa Italia. And the way they just play these games, I think they are so good because there's 
tactically so flexible. You know, they can go deep, they can go higher, they can go in a mid-block, and they can attack in several ways. Well, you saw that against Barcelona twice this season as well. Barcelona yeah. were knocked out of the group that had, I believe, was a Bayern Munich 2 into Milan and Barcelona. And, of yeah, course, Barcelona exactly. finished third, were knocked down to the Europa League, but Inter Milan were very, or Internazionale even, were very flexible in those games. I remember that game at the New Camp, especially where it was, or was it the game at the New Camp where they, was it 1-0 and they just held on and held on and held on, but they, they managed yeah. to. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, you, you can go deep and play the rest of the game with a low block, but the, mm -hmm. it's risky even because you are so close to your box, you have to know how to play in that situations in a low block and defending your box and all that. And Inter has show a really good ability to adapt to that. But then obviously you have you have a team that knows and likes to play in different systems and and blocks and with several ideas to attack and to defend. And then you have a team that is absolutely marvelous against any type of defensive block. Mm -hmm. If, the, if Manchester City, if they're playing against a high block, now they are really good being direct, launching long balls into Haaland. If they're playing against a mid or low block, I, I think, I really think, and this, this is, I, I don't know if this is um, a crazy thing to say. I, I don't really know. I, I don't really think so. Sorry. That Manchester City may be the best team in the world just breaking lower mid blocks, just in, in the way yeah. they look. Well, considering they'd, they'd face mid to low blocks, on a game by game basis, yeah. I would say right now, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And the way they calmly and patiently attack, uh, changing the ball from side to side, looking the best chance to break. And, you know, the kind of players they have to break lines is De Bruyne mm -hmm. and Gundogan. And then you have inventive players on the wings like um, Mares or Grealish, or it's unbelievably good. And then they have on the bench. Uh, Julian Alvarez, which is a really, really good option. And I think it's going to be on the second half. But, you know, people obviously think when they see this match that Manchester City are, are the favourites and they are relentless, as David said. But Inter, in the other side, is a really, really good team. And I think, and I hope as well, that it's going to be a really interesting tactical battle because... There are two really good coaches. And what what really calls me into this final is basically how good Inter are in these uh, stages, as I mm -hmm. said before. And I, I think besides their tactically flexibility, they're so tactically flexible, um, I think Insagi just knows to play these games as a player, now as a coach. I think he may be a really good coach in the, you know, the, the motivational side. And then the tactics just work and players have trust in him because they they know and they see. When you, when a coach tells you something like, in a semifinal of the Champions League, we're going to score and we're going to then defend deeper. Mm -hmm. And you, you dig that, you just have to believe in what is going to save you in the final, you know? Yeah. David, Bright made a really good point about Haaland. When I think back to when he said about teams pressing high against Manchester City and City now have that ability to go over the top 
to Haaland because he's incredible in the air. You saw that literally on Saturday from City's goal, record-breaking goal, I believe, within 13 seconds, was it? It was just a long ball to up the pitch and then it eventually fell to Gundogan. And, and, and I think Haaland was challenged the header with Victor Lindelof and he Lindelof headed it kind of off Haaland's head in a weird way and it fell to Gundogan. Bob, it was a great strike. But when I think back of another game against, uh, it was the game against Arsenal a few weeks ago where Arsenal were pressing City high up the pitch and, and I think it was Ederson just pinged it long to Haaland and he bullies the defender. Was it, was it Rob Holding at the time? I believe it might have been Rob Holding. I could be wrong on that. So apologies to the listeners if I'm wrong on that. It might have been Rob Holding. He bullies the defender anyway and then plays in the Bruyne and the Bruyne scores, of course, which was, it just shows that City have that ability now to, if teams press them high, you can go long because you're committing bodies lower down the pitch and then the team are pressing you higher to match those numbers. Brighton do it really well and then you go over the press rather than through it like City always used to do. They can now go over it. The question I want to ask you about Haaland is, I know, obviously, in terms of trophies, he's it's hard to argue that he hasn't made them better because if they win a treble, like of course it's probably the best rendition of this Manchester City team we've we've seen under Pep Guardiola. But there was a lot of talk around January, February time when City, I, I think it was after the loss to Spurs under Antonio Conte, where I'm not going to name journalists and names, but there was articles being published saying that. Haaland has made City worse. There was a lot of newspapers and publications publishing these types of articles saying Haaland has made City worse. They were explaining the reasons why, saying they're making fewer passes. He's not coming out to the wide areas to link up play and and create triangles, which I always said, and I've said it off camera, and Brian can back me up, was the biggest lover of nonsense I've ever heard in my life. In your opinion, David, do you think having Haaland in this team, while it has maybe made City change the way they play, do you think this is the best City team we've seen on the Pep? 100%. I do. I do, 100%. Um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with what you said about those articles. I, I don't think that was the truth. I think Haaland mm-hmm. has made the team better. Um, I think what they were missing last season at times, just a little bit, was that focal point at the top of the pitch. And Haaland gave them that. And yes, it meant that, you know, we saw earlier on in the season, there were a few teething problems that, you know, they had to get used to the way that Haaland wanted balls played into him. Harlan needs to get used to how the team played. So there, there was a little bit of um, disjointedness there. But as the season's gone on, we've seen that kind of get eradicated. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they are now one one unit and, and everyone knows how everyone wants to play. And I think also, just, just going into that a little bit more, you can see now that, that Pepton was tweaking that a little bit. He's saying, OK, so we can use Harland in this way, but actually it's a bit like what you're saying about the Arsenal game. And actually in that game, what he used really cleverly was that Haaland was dropping back a little bit more and allowing mm. De Bruyne to run in behind. So he was, he was almost using Haaland, his reputation, to draw the defenders out, knowing they would follow Haaland, and then allow others to make the runs in behind. So, yeah, I, I do think actually having Haaland in the team do give, does does give Man City a really, really good chance. And he's always been that missing piece they had last season. That's not to say they were really bad last season, because they clearly weren't. But he's been that little bit more that they needed just to build on last season. Uh, and now we are seeing probably the best Man City team uh, that Pep has ever assembled, yeah. Yeah. And he has now 53 goals. I don't believe he scored actually in a few weeks. I don't remember the last time he scored. Was it Everton or Waves last time he scored, maybe? He scored 50. He has 53 goals anyway. 36 are, were in the Premier League and I believe 12 
were in the Champions League, which is just unbelievable. He's the top goal scorer, of course, in the Premier League and of all time, I suppose, in, the, in a Premier League season. He's also the top goal scorer in the Champions League right now. 53 goals is a scary, scary record. How do you... If you're if you're Inter and you're in Zaghi and you're speaking to your players, whether it be Matteo, Matteo Darmian as a right centre-half or or Skriniar or Bastoni or whoever plays at the back for Inter this weekend, how do you psych them up to stop this machine, this 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 robot that no other defense in the world can stop? What do you say to them? What what what, what what's your I suppose the best we've seen is probably Rudiger in the force leg against Haaland when he was nearly in his armpit. But what 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 would you if you were the manager? What would you tell your players or how or how to stop them? What would your plan be to stop him? I I think I've just seen something 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 very similar at the weekend in in the women's Champions League final. We Wolfsburg have had the the same luxury if you like they've got that mm-hmm. sort of focal point at the top of the pitch, and in the second half Barcelona basically sat back into a back five, and they almost eliminated that possibility of sending long balls up the field and I would say do something similar to that because it really works so if you use your back five to sit back in one organized line yes it's gonna be a little bit negative and perhaps a little bit boring but I think if you do that you almost stop those long balls going up the pitch because you can then get more numbers around Harlem which means yes he's big he's strong and he's likely to win the battles but there's less chance of him getting the ball down and then turning mm-hmm. and running what he clearly wants to do um I think the problem with that then is how do you stop you know, by doing that, you perhaps think of a bit more room to De Bruyne and Gundogan and all those those key players that can obviously create. But I think if you want to eliminate the threat that Haaland has, or certainly to to limit it perhaps a bit more than uh, you'd be able to normally, that's the way you've got to do about it. You've just got to get numbers around and just take as much time away as possible and, and hope you can win some balls. Because, um, you know, if you can get up there and, and clear those headers before he can get there, I'm not saying that's easy because it mm-hmm. clearly isn't. But if you can and you can at least try to do that, um, I think there's a chance. And and if you take Haaland out of the game, you you eliminate so much of what makes Man City really, really good. Um so if I was if I was managing into yes, it'd be a little bit negative, but that's maybe maybe the first step I'd take. Mm-hmm. And then and then you build on that and you say, Okay, so we've taken Haaland out, how do we perhaps stop him passing backwards? How do we close those chat those channels down, things like that? Do we then press and, and try and win the ball back? Um, you know, before De Bruyne has time to control it, for example, and mm-hmm. and whatever. So that's maybe maybe what I'd go about. The biggest stress for me when I think of how to stop Manchester City is the sheer quality they have all over the pitch. So if you, you're obviously going to have a plan to stop Haaland and then you'll say, okay, so we've dealt with him. Now how do we stop De Bruyne? And you go, okay, we've dealt with him. And you've already used maybe five players on these two. And then you go, okay, what about Silva? What about Grealish? What about Mares if he plays? I mean, it comes to a point where you're thinking, my God, like something has to give. So you're going to have to have... Some players who are who have the ball more than others, for example, because you maybe have to tightly mark others. In terms of um stopping Haaland, it was a good point. And as well, I thought uh Manchester United did a reasonably good job on Saturday, apart from right at the end, I remember when when the team needed to push for a goal. Understandably, they were two one down. Ha uh, uh Ten Hag took off uh Varan, I believe. And he kind of went, was it Varane or was it Lindelof? I, I think it might have been Lindelof. He took Lindelof off and went man for man, just Varane versus Haaland, and used Sean Wambasaka as the wide centre-backs in a tree, and they went man for man on the wingers. I think going man for man on City will always be an issue. 
I think if you're playing a tree, fine, but I think it's almost has to be like a shared responsibility between players to stop them. Because yeah, so yeah, I think I think you're right. I think maybe the best course of action for Inter is to to sit deep with their back three, which falls into a five, of course, and, and use shared responsibility, zonal defence. So if Haaland makes a near post run, the near post defender goes with him. If he goes to the back, the the the, the far the, the back post defender goes with him. I think going from man for man is, is a disaster because his movement is incredible. It's not just that Haaland's a big guy and he's powerful. His movement's unbelievable. Uh, Brian, we've obviously spoken about City's attacking qualities. But Inter are obviously in the Champions League final for a reason because they can score goals. Lataro Martinez, for example, is the second top goal scorer in Serie A this season. He's had an unbelievable individual campaign. Romelu Lukaku was on loan from Chelsea, has been arguably a letdown in his second spell. I think he only has a handful of goals. And if I'm being honest, Edin Dzeko probably will start over Lukaku in the final because him and Martinez have, have struck up a very good partnership as in recent weeks. What do Man City have to look out for in terms of, of Inter's attacking threat? You know, I I really think Inter is a really good team when they attack and they have really good names to attack and to cause threat. Um, Lukaku has been really good in the recent matches. He has been back to a little bit of the form he, he has shown at Inter. Obviously, not that great form he, he, he in which he was with Conte in that uh, marvelous season he had with Inter. Mm-hmm. But they have really good ways to attack and I remember a match where Manchester City really did suffer and it was in the start of the season against Newcastle um, I think it Is that was the 3-3 yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that was the first time in a long time I watched Manchester City suffer against a team because they apply a high press a really high press that was focused on getting the ball in the central channels and then attacking the wide channels that um, inverted fullbacks were freeing. Um, I don't remember if in that game was Rico Lewis or Cancelo. I really don't remember. But I, I believe really... it was Cancelo. I don't think Rico Lewis yeah. came up yet. He kind of came up just around the World Cup period. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So um, Newcastle put a focus on that. On that. The thing is, Manchester City really did suffer because they weren't as direct in that time against the high press. They were trying to um, evade them, playing on the ground and trying to be trying to play their, their usual game and trying to be that, that direct as they were um, in the final lap of the season with, with Haaland as they show against Arsenal maybe. Mm-hmm. But I think Inter have, has the intensity and the energy on players to, to really press high and then... I re- if I was Manchester City, I, uh, I'll be really careful with what Inter will look to threat. How look how Inter will look to threat the wide channels with DiMarco getting very high mm-hmm. because he has shown his talent and his quality to bring um, attacking threat through the left wing, being very wide, creating crosses and creating not only crosses but how. Uh, energetic he is to penetrate the box and then create cutbacks. And when a player is penetrating the box and then creating cutbacks, and you have the likes of Jeco, Lautaro, or, or Jeco or Lukaku and Lautaro in, and then Barella arriving from behind, is a really good thing 
to have in your team and it's a thing to be careful on your squad. And it's not even only Di Marco. Dumfries is basically mm-hmm. a winger on the on Inter system. Uh, we are not going to see the typical things we see on Serie A that Di Marco and Dumfries are really high and are playing as a wingers. I don't really think we're going to see a constant thing on that. But well, Dumfries really... quite often comes into the box for DeMarco's cross yeah, to get on the end. For DeMarco's cross, yeah. yeah. So it could maybe a thing they will look to do. I don't think on a basic, on a constant thing on the final, but I think we're going to see one or two chances like that because that's how their system works, mm-hmm. you know, uh, freeing the, the 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 wing back and then sending crosses to the far post to the another wing back is a thing uh, they did so much with Conte and they are doing right now with Insagi as well. So, yes, you know, when you think of Inter, you see Lautaro, you see Jeco, and you see Varela, which are the, I think, the biggest and the better players in the squad, but they have mm-hmm. a really good chance of creating wide threat. And maybe much if Manchester City are, are caught in behind and Inter can attack these spaces, inverted fullbacks, or uh, now Stones is the one that goes inverted, can be a threat on your own, but in the way Manchester City are playing, it's like David says, it's like Guardiola has maybe just unlocked every system in the world and Mm -hmm. every markings in the world and every ways to attack in the world, but I think we we were in the same mood when they went to the final against Chelsea. So we have to we have to know in the preview when we are waiting for this final that as Tuchel is a great tactical coach and he won a final against City. Insagi is a really good one as well with different type of systems to attack and that one of the white red with DiMarco and Dumfries trying to stretch rival blocks could be a really good one and mm-hmm. as we said before they are very varied and I really believe they are going to press high at some moments because they have the energy and the engine to do it you know with people as Lautaro and Jeco in, in front and then Dumfries and DiMarco as well and the as the wingers when they are marking on a high pressing system, but in the central channels as well, Brozovic, which is an amazing defender, um, Barella and Chalanoglu, uh, mainly Barella and, and Brozovic, the the most energetic and the mm. most solid defenders. It's really good. It, it's really good uh, thing to to have. I think and what I fear I, for though in that respect is that they will press. City's fullbacks, I'd imagine, with their wing backs, and then the front yeah. will take the centre backs and the goalkeeper, and the midfield will probably go man for man. Then, but then that leaves you with the 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 problem that we spoke about a few minutes prior about Haaland that you can go direct to Haaland, maybe yeah. target Matteo Darmian, who's not that physically big against Haaland, and then you can force that quick turnover, play Grealish in behind or, or or whoever may be on the right side. So I think there's there's obvious flaws to that. I hope. Inzaghi 
I, I would imagine Inter will press high, but I hope Inzaghi does so in a way that that they can't be taken advantage of from a long ball. Because while they are solid at defending long balls, Haaland is a handful. Ultimately, Ederson to Haaland is a, is a scary, scary pass, and it's a scary thought. And I hope they have a plan to deal with that. And just before we 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 finish talking about their attacking qualities. Kareem wrote a really good set piece analysis preview for the UEFA Champions League final this for for this Saturday, but it was published today, which is the Tuesday. So if you have, if you're a subscriber to the TFA site, please go and read that piece. He looks at how set piece, how how both teams defend set pieces and attack set pieces, whether it be corners or free kicks, and looks at how they can have a marginal impact in the final because ultimately margins matter and, and set pieces, a set piece could be the deciding goal and it could be the decider of the game. So it's really important that you go and read that. It was a really good piece as well. Lucas, in terms of goals, I would imagine you wouldn't get great odds on Haaland scoring, especially any time I would imagine they're pretty, pretty poor odds. But who, who would you get decent odds on to score in this final? Actually, it, it's surprisingly the odds kind of, you know, improved a little in the last few weeks because I think lots of people are anticipating this having and marking the fact that he hasn't been scoring much in the last few games of playoffs in the Champions League and even other big games like the FA Cup final. What happens is, I think... It's natural to be scared and all teams are kind of, you know, sometimes even exaggerating in the man marking, which of course gives better odds to, to players like Bernardo Silva, as we were discussing before starting to record. But I think it, it all translates a little to tactical expectations that we have for the game in the sense that um, I think that essentially what you guys were saying is uh, they can't repeat the mistake that Real Madrid did in the second leg, especially. I mean, you can't defend like, uh, I think Ancelotti kind of, unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, because I like Real Madrid and uh, they were a little bit too much Catenaccio style, like in the fifties and, and just wait for the perfect counterattack. Well, didn't they this make the... 15 passes or what was it? Seven? It was like, 10 passes for 15 minutes or something ridiculous. I mean, a prof- like the European champions literally were averaging less than a pass per minute. That's yeah, I mean, and the fact that they didn't have, I think, one single shot on target or something yeah. like this, or they didn't have, no, no, no. What I was going to say is they didn't have one pass in the attacking field in the entire mm. first half. That's just incredible. And uh, I think that's the the trap that Inter can't fall into because it's pretty much like, okay, you got to defend, you got to try to find a counterattack. But have in mind that this is the the comfort zone of City. They're used to this kind of game. So you got to be a little bit brave in the sense of attacking a bit more. Mm but not being you know stupid enough to to open up in 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 a stupid way that you can you know be exposed so this i think the word that we're looking for is balance and uh, the market is trying to balance these expectations as you guys were saying trying to mark every city guys is really hard some someone is going to eventually have a space 
But uh, in terms of what the market is expecting, we have, you know, Holland to score at any time at 1.7, which is not bad. I mean, we used to have odds like in the house of 1.3 to 1.5, which is a lot less. And uh, now we have, I mean, I don't know if that's a good bet in Holland, but for example, you have Bernardo Silva to score at 4.4, which is a very decent odd. And we saw what happened against Real Madrid. He was finding good spaces, especially in the right part of the field. Mm -hmm. And um, we have secondary markets, which are interesting. I mean, we all expect some pressure from City, whether this will be enough to score or not is a different story. But, uh, you know, cheap odds can be interesting too. For example, Holland to have one shot or more on target in the entire game at 1.13, that's 13%. I mean, imagine how much time you have to put your money on the bank to get 13% these days. Even with the bad, you know, the interest rates bigger these days. I mean, it, it's still almost uh, free money if you consider the risks. Mm -hmm. And you have... Uh, other markets like Holland to have one shot on target on each half, at least one at 2.63. I mean, he doesn't even have to score. And if you see what happened in the semifinals, I mean, Courtois pulled out some, some miracles to to prevent some 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 goals, especially when he was trying to had. And you have the same market, Bernardo Silva to to have one shot on target on each half. At 10 to 1, I mean, that's not absurd. I mean, it doesn't have to be a big bet to cover this. So the secondary markets that somehow try to explore the fact that there will be a pressure and we don't know if they will succumb or not, but uh, I think they translate some good opportunities for, for our listeners. I think the one shot on Tiger per half bet on Harlem would have came off on Saturday. I believe he had either one in each half or he had one overall. I remember he made that one, he had that one shot in the second half, David De Gea made a very good save from. I don't believe he, unless I'm wrong, I don't believe he had one in the fourth half, so I actually wouldn't be the worst bet in the world. Again, I'm no betting expert, I'll leave that to you, Lucas, to, to decide what, what would consist of a good bet or not, but I think it, it is interesting, to, it's worth noting that in literally the game prior, which was perhaps against a tougher side, although that's arguable, who knows, uh, he he he! I think only had one shot on target. Just to to add one little thing, you mentioned what's a good bet or not. I think one important concept that we have to to explain is the betting limits. And uh, professional gamblers with big syndicates, as they're called, they bet millions in each selection that they have. So these markets are pretty secondary. I mean, like uh, either small investors or people that just want to have fun. I mean, these odds won't be available to bet a lot of money. So they're like more conceptual in a way compared to, let's say, whether City will win the game or handicaps and stuff like this. So we're exploring like marginal markets in this sense. Hmm. That's interesting. David, this will be the first, although he did get to the Champions League final in 2021, this will be Pep Guardiola's potentially first Champions League win since 2011, when, of course, they beat uh, Manchester United 3-1 at Wembley. I am, f although it's kind of slightly different eras, most of the same players are no longer playing, it's fair to say, although there are still some that are sticking around. What, do, in your opinion, 
do you think this is the best? We said that this is probably the best rendition rendition of of Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. Do you think this is the best rendition of any Pep Guardiola side, or do you think that the twenty eleven Barcelona was perhaps better? It's a really really tricky one to be honest. Mm. Um, that Barca team was scarily good, and you know no one was getting past them in a hurry. Um, having said that, I do think this Man City team is perhaps a little better. I just think because of the... I think that Barca team was really, really good, but I don't think he had, to the best of my memory, as many options in terms of tactics and systems and things, not just players, but in terms of, you know, in able, how many times he can change mm-hmm. the game and how many combinations he can have and all that stuff. I think he's got more in this Man City team just because of players' versatility. I mean, you look at John Stones, for example, who's been transformed from a a centre-back to right-back to a defensive midfielder. He's, that's what I mean. He's got so many different ways he can play just one player and open up so many different possibilities. I'm not sure he quite had that at Barcelona. I'm not sure he quite had that at Bayern Munich. So, yeah, for me, I think this is probably the best pet team that, that we've seen just purely because of the number of options he's got. Do you think, though, and, and another way to look at it is, do you think it's that they're a better team or do you think it's a better system? In my eyes, I think that the system now is probably better. But when I look at like Xavi, Busquets, Iniesta, Messi, all these players, I probably would tend to believe that the players were better. Like, you know, I'm, I don't think anyone's going to argue that uh, Riyad Mahrez was better than Messi or that, you know, Jack Grealish was better than at the time. It would have been probably, was it David V, I believe, at the time? Or, or that, you know, Rodri is even better than Busquets. But... Or, or I suppose even um, Gundogan and Xavi. But yeah, I don't think they're better players. But the system-wise, I think you're right. I think there's something to say for the system. Like, the the way they play is, is genuinely unbelievable. And the evolution, I think they've had just this season alone. As we said, people are saying the Haaland made them worse. They were just evolving from last season till now. And the thing about Pep Guardiola sides are they don't evolve throughout the season in terms of like they don't have a season or two of transitioning and buying players in the summer and stuff like that like say you had a a, a, you know Jurgen Klopp had at Liverpool it took a few seasons to get it right before they started challenging Guardiola's team evolved throughout the season so like they'll be pretty ropey for the start maybe start to solidify somewhere in the middle and then in that final stretch they will rip you apart because he's got it right by then um, so what do, what do you think about that? Do you think it's it's the system or do you think it's it is genuinely the players? I I think it's I think it's the system. Um I mean you're quite right, you know, they they seem to because I think he has a plan every single summer. He knows which bit of the team he wants to improve. You know, last season it was clearly going out and finding a, a, an out and out goal scorer, someone who could lead the line. You know, the fact that he's got Haaland uh, mm. and you know makes you wonder who's who's going to go after this this time that's going to be uh, a little bit better. You'd probably argue someone someone in the Gundogan-esque area, uh, area particularly if Gundogan leaves, they're going to need that sort of midfield presence. Um, but he just seems to have a plan every single summer. And then, of course, it takes time to to gel and, and you know, like, like we saw with Haaland, and it takes time for the player to settle in and the others to then settle in and, and gel with, with that player. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he just has a knack of, of developing in the right way you know, doing enough but not doing too much because it'd be very, very easy to go out and sign two or three players but find mm-hmm. actually you've done two or three players too many, for example. Um, he has a knack of knowing which players he wants, finding the right player that fits the system and 
not overdoing it in the transfer market, which, you know, we've seen from Chelsea, for example, it's very easy to overdo that, just bring too many in and just get almost swamped with, with talent and not find a way to do it. But Pep has a way of doing it. He just knows he has a plan for every single player. Um, and we, we've seen that throughout his career at all three sides. Mm. But I think I think this season, just because of the way Man City have just been tearing teams apart and just finding a way to win every single game, regardless of whether they're sitting... You know, whether they're playing a team who'll sit back, whether a team who'll press, whether a team who'll counter-attack, you know, they, they find a way. And I think that just comes down to him knowing the system, knowing the players and knowing what each player can offer to each individual system. Are you telling me that Chelsea signing 40 players for 600 million wasn't wise? Oh, I, I couldn't possibly say. Don't, I, don't believe, <laughs> I don't believe it. No way. Um, You've already seen the mass exodus of half of them anyway at the moment. And the yes. find fascinating. What, what it, it was an, it's like an experiment of when you give a, chi- a, a child your, your PS5 or FIFA 23 career mode. You know what I mean? It's unbelievable what's happening. But anyway, uh, Brian, before we wrap up, I want to touch on Inter. Under Antonio Conte, they finished second in Serie A's fourth season. They came close to the title against Mercio Sarri's Juventus. Second season, they they managed to take the crown. Juventus had massively massively dropped off under under Andrea Pirlo. Conte won the league with Inter Milan, but they underperformed across both teams, or, or, or sorry, across both years and seasons. They underperformed in Europe. This time around, they're arguably underperforming in the league and have done under Inzaghi. I mean, there was, let's be honest, you know, I don't want to to sugarcoat anything. By the start of March, it was looking as though Inzaghi was was going to be, you know, given his marching orders because they were desperately struggling in the league. I believe they were fourth, or, I think they were fifth in Serie A. It looked like they weren't even going to qualify for the Champions League next season. Then he managed to get a, a nice run together. They managed to win the Coppa Italia for the second year running. And now they're in a Champions League final. They seem to be more able to compete in knockout competitions than in Serie A, whereas Conte's side were more able to compete on the league front, but were woeful in European competition especially. Why do you think that is? Like, what, what, what do you think the biggest change has been? Do you think the system is more, you know, the system's more adaptable to knockout games, kind of like an Unai Emery side, for example, like Villarreal or something? Or what do you think that the, the reason is? I think, you know, and this is a very interesting thing to talk about because um, I don't I don't really know how sure is the Insagi's spot at Inter after the final because... I, I surely think they want that coach that can fight in the Serie A in a more regular way as Conte did. And mm-hmm. Insagi hasn't been able to do that. But he has been able... Last season at the Champions League, he um, had the bad luck to play against one of the uh, teams in the final that was Liverpool. And they even won a match at Anfield 1-0 in the away match. Then right now, at the at this Champions League, they have shown to have the potential to be playing in these knockout stages and at the Coppa Italia as well. I think the first thing to point out is the system, how varied and how flexible is. They know how to counterattack. They know how to be 
uh, a more in a more organized shape. And we have seen basically with Real Madrid's Zidane how good and how key is to play direct in the Champions League. And even Pep Guardiola has learned from that, you know, to be a more direct in this mm -hmm. kind of stages and play in a match in a more deep way. Well, against Leipzig, he did that in the yeah. in the in the first match of of, of that knockout um, mm -hmm. match. So the first thing of all is that, and the another point I want to 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 tell right now is that. The squad maybe is not that large and doesn't have the quality to play regular regularly and just to try to rotate things and kept winning on Serie, you know. And then, but their starting eleven when they are all when they don't have injuries or something like that is really good to to play on this type of things and they have players of really good not only technical quality but mentality mm -hmm. you know Lautaro has just won the World Cup and he won, won the Copa America and then you have players like um, Barella which won the Euros, the Euros with, yeah. with Italy and you have uh, Bastoni as well at Cherby which is, which is experimented player then Chalanoglu Mm -hmm. As well, you know, they, they have played with Brozovic as well, which was a, a really key player to win the, the, the Serie A with Conte. You have players that have the right mentality. Dzeko is another experimented player that brings so much to the squad and to the game, not only to the squad with his um, knowledge. So you have these several type of things that really helps you on the knockout stage. You have variety and you play direct and you know how to play deep and you know how to play in a more aggressive way as mm -hmm. well. You then have experimented players in finals, winning championship, winning important trophies and players that have leadership and experience in their careers. And then you have a manager that has shown to be the right manager to this type of matches, to have the right tactics, to acknowledge to play these matches, you know, and... Mm -hmm. As a player, he knew that, and as a coach, he's showing to. And, and I, I don't think it's a secret that Conte is just not the manager to this type of matches with Chelsea, with Tottenham, with Inter, with Juventus. Even he wasn't the type of coach. Well, actually, when I when, when I said he underperformed in Europe, I did forget to mention they got to the Europa League final in 2020, but they lost. Ultimately, so yeah. they kind of they finish no better than anyone. Exactly, and we were thinking of, um, we were comparing Barcelona, Manchester City teams from that semi final against Inter, mm -hmm. and that Inter team wasn't that amazing in terms of names and in terms of quality of the squad, but it, it was how great Jose was. Uh, mentally like with his players you know like just um getting them to know and to believe they have to win the final even though they were playing against the best team in the world mm -hmm. and then in the final they were playing they were playing against one of the best teams in the world as it was Bayern Munich so 
if we want to compare that, I think this is, this Inter squad is stronger and better than that one that won the Champions League. But they have to be as mentally strong as that team was. And they have shown so some things that really acknowledge to, to, to that mentality they have with Jose in, in, in 2010. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, as we said at the start of the podcast, ultimately it's over one game. And I know it's cliched, but they still have a chance of winning. Man City aren't unbeatable. I mean, Brentford just beat them last week, whenever. I understand it was a rotated side, but still, let, let, let me clutch, let me grab my straws. Before we wrap up, we'll do quick fire predictions. David, I'll come to you first. What 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 do you think the score will be? And give me give me your scores. I think it'll be it, it'll be close. It'll be a one nil or two one. I'll go for two one. Um, I I think Harlem will score. I think uh, Lautaro Martinez will score, mm-hmm. and I think uh, let's let's say. Uh, Gundogan will score. Nice. Bryant, what about you? Quick fire prediction. Yeah, I'm going with the 2-1 as well for Manchester City. I think Haaland is going to score twice and Lautaro is going to score for Inter. Well, but, I watched... Let me change it. Let me change it. I, I think Barella is going to score for Inter. Okay. <laughs> well, I watched a an Instagram reel this morning of a dog predicting the final and he said 2-1 Inter. So who am I to disagree with a little dog, right? So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go two one into Milan because my ego is massive, and I refuse to uh, admit that Man City will probably win the treble and, and ruin a perfect Saturday in the sun. But anyway, we'll wrap up the podcast there. David, Lucas, Brian, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I really enjoyed this chat, and to all the listeners at home, I hope you enjoyed as well. Make sure to tune in on Tuesday for another episode of the TFA Scouted Podcast for you all to hopefully enjoy. Also, make sure to rate the podcast too and share it with your followers, friends, and family as it really helps us to grow. Thank you all for listening, and goodbye for now.